Well, we had a pretty interesting passage a few weeks ago here at 1 Corinthians 7. I think this one tops it. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and for me as we look at this part of God's word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the day you've given us and we thank you for our time together here now. Uh, We pray that you would help us as we consider this part of your word, uh, that we would read it uh, humbly, uh, that you'd give us wisdom in seeking to understand it and apply it into our context. uh, And we pray that it would be uh, ultimately helpful to us and to our church. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what are we trying to achieve when we meet together like this on a Sunday? Are there particular things that we should or shouldn't be doing? Uh, And does the Bible provide us any guidelines or rules about how a gathering like this should function, how we should operate as a a church? Uh, Now, if you look at different churches around the world or just even in our own city, um, you'll notice that there are a lot of different opinions going around about what Christians should do when they meet together. There are some churches that see their Sunday meeting as a a celebration Uh, and so often that will come in the form of very upbeat music Uh, they want to make the gathering together as lively as possible and so the atmosphere will be celebratory Uh, but other churches think that the experience ought to be far more somber and reflective and even introspective and so the music uh, will be somber Uh, the People will be encouraged to sit quietly, to commune with God. Uh, And very often these sorts of services are very traditional, very structured, will follow established liturgies. Um, But then there are other churches which are far more casual and far more spontaneous. And apart from what we actually do in church, there's enough opinions going around about who should do what as well. Down one end of the spectrum there are churches where a priest or a clergyman might do everything in an official capacity and down the other end of the spectrum it's well a bit of a free-for-all. So starting here in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians and over the next four chapters Paul wants to deal with one main issue he wants to talk to the church there about meeting together how their meetings are going Uh, He wants to talk about how they operate as a church, and particularly in that time of a public uh, gathering. He wants to encourage them in some of the things that they're doing, uh, but he's got plenty of harsh criticisms for them as well. So, to chapter 11. Uh, This first issue that he deals with for the Corinthians has to do with this, well, let's admit it, rather obscure and strange issue about women covering their heads uh, while they pray and prophesy in church. I'm happy to confess that this is a passage I find difficult to understand um, and even harder to apply in our context. But let's see what we can make of this. Uh, So what's the issue? Uh, Well, it's there from verse 3. Paul writes, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Uh, Now, the NIV translates uh, the word uh, man and woman throughout uh, this chapter, and that's uh, fair enough, that's what the words mean, but the words can equally be translated husband and wife. 
And I actually think that's probably the better way to understand uh, the context of what Paul's talking about. Not that it doesn't have um, a broader uh, focus as well, certainly in terms of the, the justifications or the reasons that Paul gets into here. Um, but I think in terms of the, the nature of um, the dishonouring of one another, uh, I think he's actually talking about a husband and wife relationship. But regardless of that, there's plenty of speculation here about uh, what Paul is actually referring to when he talks about women wearing these head coverings. Now, specifically, he is talking about what takes place in a public meeting, and even more specifically, about this uh, function of women praying and prophesying in church when they speak publicly, it seems. So whatever this is about, it's not a general rule for all contexts. Uh, it's a rather specific focus that uh, we're looking at here. Some people have speculated that the issue here is really one of modesty. Uh, so it's said that in the culture of the day, a woman's exposed hair was seen to be sexually suggestive. And so covering her hair was about modesty. Uh, there could be something in that, but there's not really a lot of historical support for that idea. As best as we can tell, um, that really wasn't a thing in either Greek or Jewish culture at the time. Some people suggest that there isn't actually a head covering thing at all, but this is really about hairstyles and the length of hair. Uh, and you might have noticed in our reading that uh, when we get to verses 15 and 16, Paul specifically talks about um, men having long uh, hair and women having short hair and uh, that this isn't, isn't the way things should be. And so the idea is that you know, that language there is synonymous with his use of and what he's talking about with head coverings. And so it's, it's not about a head covering, it's actually about women cutting their hair too short. And so pixie cuts are out. But I think the hair thing, um, if, you, if you read it that way, it actually makes it harder to understand the passage as a whole if you interpret every reference to head covering as, as a reference to having long hair or a particular way, perhaps, of wearing your hair. Um, I actually think it makes more sense if we just, the NIV translated head covering, and I actually think that that's, um, that's right. Um, and look, even if it was about hairstyles, I guess it doesn't really resolve the question, why does any of this matter anyway? So there is this seemingly obscure issue that Paul takes up with the Corinthians here. If we can try and get to what the heart of the issue is, um, I think Paul's concern is that in the practice of what's happening in the church, there are some women who are dishonouring their husbands by what they wear or don't wear, in particular uh, this head covering. So verse 5, that's his issue there. He says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. And I don't think there he's referring to her physical head. He's talking about what he's just said about um, the, the wife's head being her husband. So whatever exactly they are doing or not doing, uh, whatever particular cultural reasons there might be behind this practice, Paul is wanting them to, to not do something that's actually going to result in a dishonouring of their husbands. So while it is all a bit strange, um, I'll give you my take on what I think is actually going on here. What I think is that uh, in the church at least, uh, there's this movement to do away with any social conventions that might uh, identify uh, women participating in church either as women or particularly as married women. I think some of the women have thrown off this social convention because they found this newfound freedom in Christ uh, and they being declared one in Christ and, and equal in Christ. Uh, and there's this kind of extension of that idea, I suppose, that, that 
their marriage status shouldn't have any um, bearing or any reference to anything that they do as a part of the church community. Now that idea I think seems to fit with some of the other things Paul's just been talking about in previous chapters about how people are exercising their freedoms within the life of the church and how some of that has gone too far, that they're not actually showing proper consideration for each other. But admittedly at first glance it does seem rather strange that Paul would even want to take this issue on um, and talk about what women are wearing on their heads or not wearing on their heads. It does seem to me to be quite legalistic and quite sort of pedantic from a man who spent his whole life kind of fighting against those very things in the life of the church. I'd almost expect Paul to say the very opposite of this and say something like, well, it's just a piece of fabric, you know, wear it or don't wear it, it, it doesn't really matter. But that's not what he says. And so what to make of this? Well, I think it's because the, the issue isn't so much about the headwear itself, but the principle that Paul's concerned about, and, and that principle being one of headship. Paul speaks about this in a number of other places um, and here he grounds his argument in creation itself. So if you have a look at verse 7, he says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have a sign well, that's the old version. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now, before you ask me, no, I don't know why, what the angels have to do with all of this. Um, but Paul there is talking about an, an order in creation and a distinction in roles that he says is still relevant and still matters. Now, when we hear the word headship, I think the first reaction of many of us is, uh, but aren't we all equal? Uh, and I wouldn't want to argue with that, and I don't think the Bible does either, because I don't think the Bible equates headship with equality. Uh, they're not conflicting ideas. Um, so have a look at verse 3. We just read this. You might have missed it. I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, is man and the head of Christ is God. So Paul's saying there, there's actually a functional order within the Godhead itself, in the relationships between Jesus and his Father. So the Father here is the head of the Son. But of course, we know they're also equally God. And so whatever headship is, it's not about superiority, it's about an order to things. Notice that he also says a little later in the passage that men and women are equally dependent on one another. Uh, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So headship is not about inequality or equality. It's really about order uh, and about function. And so Paul, if I can try and summarise what he's getting at here, he wants married women not to do something which for them was going to dishonour their husbands. He sees that as a denial of the, the order that God has established. And for some reason, I don't pretend to fully understand, in their context that meant wearing this head covering when they were speaking in a public meeting. Now you might say, well, that's all very weird and interesting, or perhaps not interesting, but what's that got to do with us? Should we be encouraging women to wear scarves in church or, or hats, perhaps? Well, 
There certainly are Christian groups that have done just that. Um, if you've ever seen people from the, the Closed Brethren or the Plymouth Brethren community, uh, they insist that their women do wear a, a head covering uh, whenever they're in a public setting. And I imagine this passage is part of the justification for that. Other churches do something similar. But I think that really misses the point. Because I don't think it makes sense to import a, a symbol from their cultural context into ours that doesn't really signify the same thing for us. A head covering wouldn't mean the same thing for us as it did for them. Wearing that or not wearing it, I don't think conveys an honouring or dishonouring of anybody. So is there a cultural kind of equivalent for us? Well, I'm not sure that there is. Um, you could look at, I think, perhaps some of the outward symbols that might represent a relationship between a husband and a wife, if in fact that's what the passage is about, as I'm suggesting. So in our culture, it might be things like, and hold on to your head coverings while I work through these, um, it could be things like wearing a wedding ring. It could be taking your husband's name when you get married. It could be choosing to be referred to as a missus rather than a ms. Now, don't misquote me. I'm not suggesting that there should be a rule about these things uh, that says a woman has to wear a wedding ring or a guy or that she has to take her husband's name. And certainly within our own culture, we've seen those conventions shift rather dramatically over the last 30, 40 years, haven't we? And I think in many instances for the better. But it's still worth asking, I think, at every point there, what are our motivations behind these things? What are our motivations in any of those sorts of decisions? If it's got something to do with not wanting to honour your husband, or if it's that you're not comfortable with the idea of even being identified as your husband's wife, well, that could be a problem, couldn't it? So for us, it's not head coverings. But I suppose if we're talking about the idea of what we wear, perhaps how that might reflect on a spouse, is it possible for a woman or a man to dress in a way that is dishonouring to their spouse? I suppose it could be. But again, I think it's really about motivations. So, put a few ideas out there. I've got to tell you, I'm still not entirely convinced that any of those things are quite the same as what's going on in Corinth. Um, there does seem to be something very particular happening there. But the principle is still worth thinking on. That while we are one in Christ, we should continue to recognise the order that God has established in creation and even in a marriage relationship. And in our meeting together, uh, that we don't seek to try and erode that either, to ignore that or to do things that uh, dishonour one another. I'm going to draw a line under that one and move on. Happy to take questions afterwards. Uh, Lord's Supper. That's the second issue that he addresses in this chapter. And, well, you know, it doesn't take long to realise that Paul's not impressed with what's going on in the life of the church there, what he's heard about how they're celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Now, we did this last week, didn't we? We celebrated uh, the Lord's Supper together, if you were here. And when we think of that idea, communion or the Lord's Supper, we tend to think of it, uh, well, in, I do anyway, in the way that we held it here in church last week. Um, the little cups with a little bit of bread. You might come from a different tradition, a different church tradition. You might have been used to sharing a, a common loaf that you tore a chunk off as it went around, or drinking from a common cup that might have been out the front, particularly if you came from an Anglican or a Catholic church. 
that might have been served to you uh, by the priest or the clergy. But for the early church, uh, the Lord's Supper seems to have been quite a different thing. I think it would have looked a little bit more like a church picnic or a, a potluck lunch together that you'd have after the service over in the hall. It seems to be a proper meal. And that's where the problems seem to be in Corinth, around this meal. They were getting together for this meal, which Paul identifies as the Lord's Supper, but have a look at what Paul says is actually going on. Starting there in verse 20. He says, So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So when they get together for this meal, there are some, it seems, who are showing no concern whatsoever for the other members of their congregation. Um, they're going ahead and eating without giving a second thought to others. This is a meal that was meant to be an example of the fellowship that they shared together. It was supposed to be an expression of what united them, what they shared in common, that they shared a trust in Jesus and salvation in his name. It was meant to be a demonstration of that and their, their commitment to one another. But it's anything but. In fact, the way that they're conducting this meal is fundamentally contradicting what it's meant to represent. So Paul says at these meals, they're disgracing themselves. They're humiliating the poor among them and they're failing to love each other as they should. So imagine for a moment that we, we, we head off to the hall after the service today and it's a potluck lunch. You all know what a potluck lunch is? This is not, I'm not caught in a generational gap here, am I? We all know what that is? Okay. Put your hand up if you don't know what a potluck lunch is. Okay, great. That's where everyone brings a pot and it's shared amongst everyone. So it's a bit like a really bad smorgasbord. Um, you kind of got curry sitting alongside. Yeah, anyway. Um, but imagine we head over into the hall and people crack out their, their potluck lunch, but it's more like um, you know, the BYO picnic where you eat what you brought yourself. And so there's one group who crack open their recipe and, I mean, they've got the works. There's caviar in there, there's French cheeses, there's crab legs and prawns. They've even got a lovely bottle of champagne. Hungry just thinking about it. But at another table just beside them are some people who couldn't afford to bring anything at all. And they're made to watch on, hungry, as the others not only feast, but Paul says get drunk. Now, it's kind of hard to imagine that we might treat each other like that here, but that's certainly what was happening in Corinth. And worst of all, this is meant to be a celebration of a meal that's to remind them of the sacrifice that Jesus made for them. They were meant to be remembering through this meal that Jesus came into the world to suffer and to die for them, meant to be remembering that it's only through the grace of God that they are saved and that they share that common faith in him and salvation through him. And so Paul calls them out for this behaviour. He says that it's a very denial of the thing that they claim to believe. 
Now, it's easy enough to stick the boot into the Corinthians, isn't it? But the question we need to ask ourselves is, is there anything about our meetings together? Is there anything about the way that we treat one another, not just in the, the public meeting, but at any time? Things which contradict what we profess to believe. Can we say that we believe that we're all one in Christ Jesus, but then show favour to the wealthy or the better educated among us, or those with power, or those who are beautiful? Can we say that we've been forgiven everything in Jesus, but at the same time allow ourselves to hang on to, to bitterness and anger towards others who we feel have wronged us, and perhaps they have? Can we say we belong to God, but be perfectly happy to indulge in a bit of gossip about others here, to run them down? Can we say that we are saved by the grace of God, but be quite happy to live with divisions and factions, even within our own community? Any of these things are massive contradictions, aren't they? They're deeply hypocritical. Each of them deny the God that we serve and the gospel we claim to believe. We need to always be mindful of one another. Remember that we belong to a body of believers and to give expression to that. And to think about what that means even when we do get together here on a Sunday. Now what is the purpose of our meeting together? Of course we meet together to encourage each other in our trust in Jesus. It's good to come here and get fed, metaphorically speaking, from God's word, although you can have something to eat at morning tea, that's okay. But don't we come here to learn from God's word, to be encouraged in our faith? And that's what we can get out of it, but you're also mindful of coming here to serve others. You come here mindful of the needs of other people here with the intention of serving them, of encouraging them? Did you come here this morning with a desire to find a way to express love to a brother or sister in Christ? If we claim to love Jesus, that means we must love his people too. And if we're not caring for our brothers and sisters, it's a denial of the one who has saved us. So whatever disagreements and opinions we might have about how a Sunday service should run, this is the one thing we can't afford to get wrong. We're going to pray in response and Ray's going to lead us in that.